Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Joy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk through kind of childhood faith changes to adulthood, as well as talk about transitioning from contemporary Christian music into general market music, and then all the places where those things intersect. So I guess I'd like to start uh, by talking or asking you rather about your childhood faith. Can you describe for us what kind of Christianity you were raised up in? Yeah. Well, first off, I'm still really laughing about the fact that you and I basically, we graduated the same year, but from schools that were like akin, literally they were like cousin schools to one another. Yeah. They were all faith-based schools. The two biggest uh, Christian Kings. schools in the Bay, in the South Bay area in California. Yeah. Yep. You went to Kings. I went to Valley. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, in fact, I mean, I think- you, according to Wikipedia, you were the valedictorian at Valley. And I, I didn't do, we're just going to skip past that. Well, I didn't do that well, but I was student class or student body vice president one year. Oh, nice. I was student body pres. We would have, we would have actually been real life friends if one of us had gone to the other school. That is very funny. I think so too. I mean, I think it's happening now. So I guess like better late than never. never. Yeah. Yeah. But you asked, you asked about like early childhood. So I'm guessing you're asking earlier than that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was raised up in faith. It was, I mean, the container was already crafted by the time that I was born. And I love that Richard Rohr says it's important to start with a container 
you know, it's much like a child learning how to speak. You learn the basics first. Mm -hmm. That's how, that's how the sound works. And I think my faith kind of built that way as well. Uh, my mom and dad both had a personal faith. And then my dad, my dad worked on Capitol Hill and he worked for IBM. And then he had this big, you know, life shift for himself. And he was like, what am I doing? Like, is life just all about making money and climbing the corporate ladder? Like, this is not, this is not how I want to live my life. So he actually quit a very high paid job and moved to a retreat center, like a, a, a Christian retreat center and began running that retreat center and like turning the business around for it so that it could be sustainable and people that worked there could actually survive and feed their families. And so that was what I was raised in. My dad, at the time I was born, he was at a little tiny camp called Camp Barakel in right outside of West Branch, Michigan, which is like in the sticks. And I was right. I remember being raised just outside a lot and like God and nature being very combined and looking at what life was like from that era. It was a lot about living life with people in close proximity and that it was messy and that my parents, my dad was the executive director, but like, I remember my mom and my dad, like cleaning cabins, like some weekends, you know, it was like everybody pitched in together and um, we moved when I was four to another retreat center on the East Coast to New Jersey. And I would have been, I was, yeah, around four. And I remember my sister talking to me about what would happen if I didn't accept Jesus into my heart. And I was very scared. <laughs> so it was petrification was my salvation at that time, yeah. which has happened for so many of us. I but think. also, I mean, um, but always behind those is you've also got all the plausibility structures in place of like, of course I'll accept Christ, right? <laughs> so yeah, you might be afraid, but it's also presented in such a way like, but you know this thing that we all already do in your family? You just do that and then you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think on some level, I mean, the retreat center that my dad ran when I was, you know, what would that have been, four to eight. So that was uh, America's Keswick and Tom's River in Whiting, New Jersey, like, that experience for me was even at a really early age, there was that communal aspect. It was implicit, but at the same time, it also hosted a uh, recovery center for um, ex-cons. Mm. And so I remember really early on in my life, I was always very, very in tune with people. And I remember thinking, wow, life is just not the same for everybody. And people don't come from the same place every time. And people don't come to a belief system in the same way. Like there's lots of different colors and themes and stories. And like, there's a lot of roads here that people travel. And one thing that I appreciated about my family was that, you know, around the dinner table, I didn't hear my parents speaking disparagingly about what other people believed. And that, that kind of stuck with me too. So I came to a place of faith at a really early age, but around the time of junior high, we'd moved out to Northern California and I, we hit Santa Cruz and I was like, I found my people, you know, there, you, there's every shade you're ever looking for in, in any, in any possible descriptor is there. And I just loved how colorful it was in every way, shape and form. And 
for people who don't know, it was know, a really great breeding. For people who don't have background, Santa Cruz, California, is it's like if Berkeley were on the coast, but l- less expensive. And there's um, the the west coast of California uh, has a history of like uh, people living off the grid. There was an entire city near San Luis Obispo when I was in college there, about three hours south of Santa Cruz, called Los Osos. That was in, off the grid. An entire city yes. of people living, not not like yep. a thousand people, like twenty thousand people. Yep. And uh, so there's that mixed with, you know, but it's an it's a it's thirty minutes from San Jose. It's an hour and a half from San Francisco. It's it is a yeah. it is a very unique. I love it there too. I would absolutely love to too. live there. I yeah. do too. I loved it. I mean, I I remember vividly like I'd wake up and go, you know, I'd go longboarding with my friend Emily in the morning time and then I'd like dry off and then we'd go, you know, we had to drive over this really dangerous highway, Highway 17 to get to Valley Christian. But um which was just so stark in such stark contrast to like going back into Santa Cruz. Like San Jose is so much more polished in so many ways. Yeah. Like Santa Cruz is just it's like hate Ashbury runoff you know, from San Francisco. And, um, but I remember I started doing theater there in junior high at a a community college. Life just reminded me on every level that there are lots of different ways to live. And I remember talking to my mom and dad in junior high at seventh grade, sitting down at the dinner table and being like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get how this I don't, I don't get how, like, I was raised like this, but, like, you could also believe this, you could also believe this, you could believe this, you could believe this, you, could, you know, and my parents, to their credit, my parents were like, well, those are great questions, you should keep asking those, and they didn't spoon feed me, I mean, there was definitely, the culture in my house was very intact, but it also wasn't just like a talk it, it was, they were actively helping and serving people every day, like, it, it right. wasn't, like for excuse my French, like it wasn't bullshit, you know. Oh, it wasn't a bumper. Swearing is perfectly them. okay on this podcast. I'm. Oh, great. I you usually do it French more. Fluently? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm usually the first. I just do I'm it. the first to drop an f bomb if that happens. Generally speaking. Oh, so, sweet. Yeah, you're well, good. Well, you and I are in good company. I just I'm so used to having my children around, so I, I'm I'm much more edited than I used to be. When it comes to the cussing, yeah, we don't have Soren's too young um, for a swear jar, so I'm an, I'm gonna come up against that wall in a couple years here. <laughs> yeah, I've got an eight year old; he knows what's up, and a two year old, and she's very absorbent. So those two things keep me very in line. But um, yeah, I mean, I came to faith at that at that early age in junior high. I really started questioning it throughout high school. I was really in that questioning space, uh, but still incubated, you know, with a lot of loving people and well-meaning people and, you know, and some maybe not so well-meaning people as we all experience in our lives. So it came out a bit, I think like it does for so many people, you know, it's almost like, it's like glitter in a jar, you know, all these thoughts that we have about God and almost more, I was almost more fascinated with my own thoughts about God, maybe than thinking the inverse of like, what does God think about me? That would have changed things for me too if I'd gone hmm. from that direction. Well, so you've already endeared you've to... already endeared yourself to our listeners by mentioning Richard Rohr in uh, in the first five minutes here. Oh, I adore him. Yeah. Um, but what I'm already kind of interested in is the contrast between this kind of ecumenical, pretty open handed, open minded faith that your parents had, and your dad like leaving a high powered job to pursue 
you know, logistics for ministries, basically. And then at 17, you sign your first CCM record deal. And yeah. I was I've, I never lived in that world. The band that I was in was always on general market labels. But from what I know about it, it is not the most open-minded, open-handed, and ecumenical <laughs> of industries. And so no. I guess I, I'd like to train our focus a little bit on sort of that phase. Was yeah. there some initial disorientation there or how long did it take for that disorientation to come? But I mean, did you oh. assume that it would be like your parents' faith or, you know, anything along those lines? Yeah. I mean, I did, I think naively, I mean, I signed at 17, so I could be, I couldn't be anything but naive, you know? Yeah. I really thought I could, you know, make a difference in the world. And, you know, that, that was a, like, I, I can like hug that 17 year old part of me and say, of course, like, what a lovely thing you want to do. You want to help, you know, I moved to Nashville with 250 bucks in my pocket and two suitcases. I moved in with my manager and his family, which all, AKA is just a terrible idea. And I hit the road for 250 days that year. Oh my gosh. I mean, I had never seen that. I'd never seen the inside of that many churches. I'd never met that many pastors. I'd never been involved in a culture that pervasive. And there were lots of moments that I felt like, I'm not sure that Jesus is so strongly hanging out in these spaces like everyone's bragging about. It was really hard for me. And I was 17 alone on buses with men. And that was a very swift and terrifying education for me that I will spare many of you from any of those details about, because that's also what you do in this industry as a woman in order to continue to survive in this industry. Do you but, mean you, ha you act like one of the boys or you, you cordon off parts of yourself or what, what do you, I mean, without well, getting into it, details, you don't want to share. Yeah. All of it. You start, you, you get, uh, you get inoculated to things that you really ought not to be inoculated to. Uh, you begin cracking jokes in order to survive you learn that you wear a sports bra everywhere you go on a bus. I mean, it's just base. It's down to that type of stuff. It was a swift education in things that I was not prepared for. And I loved meeting the kids, you know, like doing shows and meeting kids and, you know, going to camps and singing. And it was, I always loved the connectivity that happened, but so much of the culture itself was such a whiplash for me because it felt so much more important about the outer appearance than what an inner garden was being grown on the inside of what you believe. And I felt like a lot of times it was missing the point, but I was 17 as well. So I was missing lots of points as well. Of course. Yeah. But this is interesting. And I, we don't, I don't know. I don't want to press too hard here, but one thing that, You're fine. one thing that I tend to find doing this show when I talk with people who have been involved in large-scale evangelical institutions, of which I would include like missions organizations here as well, is there's often a sharp contrast between policies that are designed to safeguard people in those organizations. And on the other hand, my doctoral psychology training that I'm going through now, where there are just like insane, robust safeguards all the time. I'm in the process of this like 12-page document just so that I can get approval to do a survey, 
right? So like what kind of adverse effects will these survey takers possibly have on being asked these questions about some negative church experiences? And then I'm thinking, huh, so I don't know if what, what, which, uh, which label were you on this first time? Uh, Reunion Records. It was tied with Zamba at the okay. time. And then it was tied with Jive. Okay. So Reunion Records signs a minor female artist and do- that I had to that I had to legally emancipate myself in order to sign said deal. So they so don't I did, really like, care about divorce that. myself from my parents. So the nuclear family is maybe not quite as important to them as they would have us believe. So so there's no policy in place to have like a, a person there as a kind of a buffer uh, for a minor young woman on tour with a bunch of men on a tour bus. That's the kind of thing I would maybe first want to have right. if I were running a label like that. Yeah. I mean, and that's what a manager is meant to do, but I'll spare, I'll spare going down that path. But so much of the time, especially when you start out that young and then when you're an amiable personality, like I was, I'll say past tense. I mean, still some, but uh, way more amiable back then and, and amenable, you know, it was, it was like, Hey, you're cool with this. Right. And I'd be like, sure. Right. You know, had I known now, I mean, I'm a mother of a daughter, she's two and a half and already I'm like, hell no, I wouldn't have done it. Right. <laughs> you know, but, and my parents, I don't blame them either. They thought, well, it's a Christian tour bus. It should be fine. You know? Yeah. Like it's a Christian label. Like surely they're not going to have marketing campaigns where they're talking about her body. I mean, there are all these kinds of things where I had no idea what I was getting into and I won't fault it entirely. Like I'm not sitting here pissed and jaded about it because so much of that, I call it the knock and roll lifestyle. Right. So it's like, it's knock, it's not rock. You know, so much of the knocks I've experienced have really, they've brought me right here so I can talk with you about it. So it's not Pollyanna, but it is like, man, I can see how my parents would would have been so hopeful and optimistic. And I was like, sweet, I don't have to go into debt to go to college. I can make a hundred grand in my first year, you know, and, and I'm making a difference and like all of this stuff. But like, I got groped by more youth pastors in signing lines than I did in any signing line I ever had with the civil wars. Wow. And that was difficult for me. Hmm. That alone would be one experience that I would say made it very difficult for me to handle the culture of Christianity and made me lose so much of what I'd held on to in in terms of innocence. And so it took me a long time. I was in a, I was in a very intense deconstructive relationship with my faith, my relationship with God. It was extremely deconstructive from that moment on and probably up until 36 30, yeah up until 36 when i went through a very unexpected divorce so like that is i mean that chunk of time for me feels like dog years it's almost you know? 20 years it's just like yeah but it's like multiplied by seven cause that's how it feels yeah. you know it's like I, you know, if, if there was a visual over here, it's almost like I'd be like, you know, like, then I'm like, man, I've, I've lived a bit, you know, the road does that. 
I was smoking an imaginary cigarette yeah. and flicking it for those <laughs> yeah. who can't see me at this moment in time. Yeah. But, but it's not jaded. It's just kind of like, man, a cup of coffee and, and like, we're here. Dan, we're here. Okay. I, I'd like to ask a little bit about the groping. If sure. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sentence I have never uttered until right now. Um, <laughs> first time for everything, Dan. So the first question I have is this began at 17 on your first tour. Yeah. So you've got – you have head pastors, youth pastors, like – and this would be – well, I, I guess I don't – it's hard to know. Like I'm I'm wanting to go into my like qualitative researcher mode where I get as many details as I possibly can in case some are useful. But that's not – this is a podcast. So it's not the time for that. That's a different mode of interviewing. Time and a place, Dan. Time and but, a place. But uh, I'll forgive myself because I'm in that mode. I'm currently doing dissertation stuff around spiritual abuse. And so that's where my brain is. Yeah. Um, yeah your brain is only – not only, but must be a, a lot, a there a lot. Yeah, it's you know? it's firing on a lot of cylinders right now with this. <laughs> your synapses are like are like on stun right yes, now probably. From this part of the story that you're, that you're telling. So w- without getting into details about the groping itself then. So one of the things I'm finding – Uh, in doing research on this religious and spiritual abuse is that it's very common for people to have a kind of spiritual fallout as a result, Mm -hmm. because pastors are identified with God or with a religious system, at least, or with Jesus. Um, And especially add in the fact that this is happening 10 years before your prefrontal cortex is fully attached to the rest of your brain. Yes. uh, Starting so early. Yes. You know, this is, this story is when I was like, doing whiteout checkers on my backpack because I liked ska. Like that's that's the age we're talking about here, you know? Like the Stussy S's yeah. on the, yeah. Right. I'm like on lunch break going to pick up the Weezer album. Like this, yes, is, what, this is what's going on at 17. So can you talk a little bit about some of the, like what was the initial and or ongoing like effects of how you saw God in the church as a result of these experiences and these signing lines? Well, I mean, I think what I did was I, I guess what the word would be, is it bifurcation? Yeah. Bifurcation, disassociation. Yeah. Yeah. To like to split Mm -hmm. off. So it was like, I very quickly was like, well, I'm not so sure that the church has much to do with God. Mm. And that was, that was a painful road to go down and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to have articulated it at that point, but it was like, I became, I became almost a watcher of my own life experience in some of that, in some of those situations that I found myself in. And that was how I stayed sane or some version of it. And by the way, that, I that watching of yourself, on. that, I'm sorry, to interrupt again, but that phenomenon no, is as far as I understand the PTSD and trauma literature, that is increasingly understood as the mechanism by which trauma is dealt with in the moment or, or uh, whatever the, yeah. And then it's also the mechanism by which it comes back to haunt you because you didn't actually go through it and get it processed. You separate it out. And so it hasn't, it hasn't been processed in your own mind. Right. And so I think that that was, I, I had to do that differentiation in order to keep going. I mean, the only way I, you can even physically tour 250 days a year is by some sort of dissociation. Yeah. 
that's the only way you survive doing something like that. And I blew out my voice end of year two of doing, I think it was 220 dates that next year. And I was, and I was just making my way. I just told myself that this is, if I want to do this and make a career for myself, I, I just had to keep grinding, you know, just like, you know how this goes. It's like pound the pavement. That's how this works. Yeah. We had a couple of those um, 200 date years as well. Right. So but not with groping. I'm feeling very in. lonely. We had a we had a grope free 200 date. I'm so proud of you. That's I'm jealous. Um, so I mean, it was frankly yeah. easier. We and we were five adults uh, in in community with each other. Nobody was the solo artist, so it was yeah. frankly easier to handle the very natural issues that arise with such a crazy travel and work schedule. Right. Yeah. Right. I was, what was helpful is around that time, I started asking for a female tour manager to come with awesome. me yeah. and that, that changed things for me a, a great deal. So I was able to focus and not feel so afraid all the damn time. And I mean, I definitely grew some thick skin in order to, you know, in order to move through that. And I loved what I did. I really did. I was going on mission trips and I was hanging out with girls and, you know, it's an odd thing when, like, it's not just the music. It's like your entire lifestyle is part of the marketing campaign. So I was very active in that. And I think so much of where things got hard for me was I started believing that I had to be perfect in order for God to love me. That was weirdly how things started translating for me. And, uh, and because of how much performing, literally, I was having to do, and being watched was not something that I was unfamiliar with, having been a you know a child in a family that was rather prominent in the, in the faith communities where I was living. I really felt like Gold Star was was like the only acceptable place to be. So I got married quite young in order to you know continue to abstain until marriage, and it was like the wheels came off at age twenty three for me. Two years after getting married. I was trying to make my third record and I just was like, I I just like, it's the only genre of music that is differentiated based on lyrical content. It's not musical content. It's the lyrical content. And I started, I was reading Richard Rohr, Everything Belongs. I was reading Anne Lamott. I was reading Cynthia Bourgeau. I was reading a lot of things like kind of quietly and clandestinely to myself. And I just thought I'm getting really tired of only being able to talk about God in a certain way. I'm getting really tired of feeling like God only loves me if dot, dot, dot. As I'd grown and traveled, I'd just met so many wonderful people who didn't believe what I did. And I all of those beliefs, you know, all the glitter in the jar started getting shaken around again, if we're going to keep that metaphor going. And so I asked out of my record deal at 23. And I had just had like the most successful single that I had ever had. It went number one on seven different charts. And I, and I, I mean, talk about the worst timing ever, like going and sitting down with the head of the company and being like, I'm having a, I'm having a very difficult time making music when I feel like my worldview is widening and I don't want to be duplicitous. And I think that if I'm to do this, I'm going to have to be, 
And I've seen people like this on the road and I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do it like that. And it took me a year to get out of my deal. And I think my faith and I, I was just shot at the end of that. I didn't know up from down and north from south. And, you know, it was a lot of like, what am I now? And what is life now? And who is God now? And that was a long and winding and has been a long and winding sort of desert, desert walk, which I think is really important that we all have in our own ways so that we're not just regurgitating something so that whatever we do believe really does become real. And we all have to do that in our own ways or we don't, but I do think that we, we've, we get confronted with these kinds of questions, whether or not we prefer them or not. So I kind of wandered for a long time, faith-wise, music-wise. I was commuting back and forth to LA, writing really terrible, like preteen Disney songs and just trying to like scrape a living out. Uh, I was a shop girl at a boutique in Nashville, like turning clothes back right side out from like the country music stars and people that I'd toured with, like leaving clothes on the floor, like hanging them back up and I just learned that like that, that like, I've never done cocaine, but I do, I say it like this. It's like that whole lifestyle that I was living, it was, and the applause every day, me sort of in subconsciously needing that, like feeling like a cocaine high and then realizing like, it's really just a Diet Coke buzz, y'all. Yeah, I really resonate with that, you know, coming off of eight years of touring and, and pretty regular ego massaging fluffing whatever you want to call it yeah (laughs) Yeah. um and also developing some bad habits in terms of what evenings are like because evenings are the show and so then they're a party but they're also work and so it becomes normal to have three or four drinks and then Mm. just being married and living in a city and being excited to be in a new marriage so two or three drinks should be normal for a weekday night. And, you know, just like a lot of kinds of, it's such a weird way to form into an adult. Uh, And so my touring years were from basically 20 to 29 or so. And so that's like, I'm I'm still unlearning some stuff from, from that era. So I, that I really resonate with that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange In a weird way, it's like this arrested development because it's just not normal what you're talking about. It's just not like even from a, you know, what what would it be from like a sensory or like a, what is it? Proprioceptor. Like it's like you're supposed to be winding down at the end of the day. But like what happens for us is with those of us on the road or with night gigs like that, it's like your adrenaline starts kicking up at at five or six and it's not done till like one or two in the morning. Mm -hmm. So, and I was still, you know, I wasn't, you know, on Christian tours, there wasn't, uh, you know, the one to two to three drinks, you know, minimum there. Um, I'm, there was at times. I've think, heard stories people. though of other bands. Oh yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just going to talk about yeah, me. Yeah. Let's just leave it there. Um, mama's just going to stay. I'm going to stay on my sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to stay on my side of the street. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw, I saw plenty. Yeah. I saw plenty. But so one of the things you mentioned there was feeling like you you had to be perfect for God to love you. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering where that came from because I I'm not I don't see it in the way your family 
seem to be. Your parents didn't seem to teach you that. And then you get on the road and you see very quickly that the Christian music or let's call it the American evangelical complex is certainly not perfect. All these groper pastors. Um, So that's the scientific term. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, well, sexual predators, frankly. And so then where does the idea, is it internal or do you just happen to be a perfectionist? Was it theological and coming from places other than your family? Where do you think that came from that need to be perfect? I think that's nature and nurture. I'm I, I'm a self-proclaimed recovering perfectionist. And I think when you're raised in a family where people are watching you, there's the subtext of like, don't, like, don't make me look bad. Like, don't mess this up. Yeah. Like, you should know better. So I think that that, that was there. Um, even though my parents talked a lot about grace, I still felt culturally like I I was like everybody else can go out and party, but not you. Cause like, you're going to get caught. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, I, I wonder if there's like, I think that we tend to, those of us raised Christian, we tend to, to think about this perfectionism, workspace, righteousness, or grace on a theological axis. Like, well, it depends on what kind of Christianity you have. And there's a continuum in terms of stated beliefs. But I bet, that more powerful than that, if I had to guess, is like, where where were you positioned socially within your family and where was your family positioned? And if your family is yeah. positioned in a position of great visibility, it doesn't matter what doctrine you were given. Right. That will trump right. the doctrine. And that's maybe yeah. just like a natural social science thing. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thought. I mean, and if you do if you do therapy, which I'm a I'm a veteran of now, um, thank goodness for therapy. Yeah. But like, if you do internal family systems work, you know, if you do IFS, you know, they talk about you know what kind of role were you in the family? You know, were you the scapegoat or were you the mascot? Like, were you the forgotten child? All those things. There's a list, and it's like I was totally the mascot. You know, mm. so even all the more, and I loved that role. That was I stepped into that, and and then I kind of stuck there for a long time. Totally. Um, as a natural fit to to then take on a, a solo artist career, right? Yes. Used then the mascot it. just continues, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just a it's just a larger platform and a larger stage. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about yeah. the? So you mentioned a couple different kinds of splitting. You you mentioned splitting from yourself in disassociation when you were experiencing this trauma, which is we talked about is very common uh, for people who are traumatized. But you also mentioned that in your mind, you split off God and the church because you were experiencing this thing with so much of the church that was so obviously anti what you knew about God. I'm wondering, when you made that split, what did you then think that Christian music was about? Was it about the church or did you think, well, even though these churches are this music can still just be about God and it can transcend these shitty systems and reach these kids directly on their relationship with God. Yes. That's what I thought. And I thought that with the theology that I had at the time, you know, I do, I love Richard Rohr's philosophy on evolutionary, you know, evolutionary theology and evolutionary spirituality. I mean, I think that with what I believed at the time, I thought that it could transcend that. And I'll never say that it didn't, or it couldn't, you know, that's not, that's not my business to know. I had plenty of interactions with people where I realized like, wow, this is, I'm so, I'm so grateful I get to do this. You know, people, 
it would be hard for me to believe that none of your songs were able to transcend that directly with listeners, right? Of course they would, that would happen some, you know, even if, even if every factor in the institutional stuff around the label and like was against it, like music is powerful. So it's still going to happen. So it would make sense that you would think of it that way. Yeah, but it, what's interesting to me, though, is if I listen back to those early albums, which I haven't done, and I can't even t- I don't even remember the last time I popped on one of those, but like, it would be as if someone had opened up your high school yearbook, like with full audio and visual av- available, you know, like, that's what it feels like when I look up you know, or when I don't look it up, but like if people will send me like old footage of like old interviews I did or, you know, like these giant arena, I wasn't filling them out. This was me just being a part of like big giant festivals and stuff. Just being like, wow, that really was its own, that was its own thing. Like there was a really prominent evangelical leader that, and this was right as I was about, as as I was like peacing out, there's a very prominent evangelical leader that had these arena, you know, sort of homecoming gathering ish things, evangelical events. And I'd done numerous ones before and I, I walked up and was doing sound check. And after sound check, the jumbotrons had been on during sound check, by the way, uh, for, for them to check, you know, audio visual and all that. And I come off the stage and they're like, you can't perform tonight. I was like, what? And they're like, you can't perform tonight. And I said, can you, can you tell me why? And they said, because you have a nose ring. And I was like, I'm fairly certain that there are a multitude of people coming into this arena who will have piercings. And I would like to believe that like God's love is big enough to, to love even us, you know? And, and they were like, I'm sorry, we have a policy. And I was like, okay, well I'll cover it up. I absolutely didn't. I just went, I just said that I would. And then I went out and I sang and then they never asked me back and I feel fine about that. (laughs) But, but again, that was that sort of like siphon of like, God loves everybody, but if you stare closer to the painting, you're going to see that like there's this very small siphon down of like you, that's the culture, right? So that's not God, that's the culture. And those two things were, that was the only way that I have been able to remain on a journey of faith without totally throwing baby out with bathwater, you know? Um, Okay, two things there. Number one, that has been my experience too of for me, it, it became clear after 2016 and then reading Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind and realizing that these social, social psychological explanations for white evangelicals made a lot more sense than theological explanations did. The other thing, though, is that isn't it so interesting – and I, I, I in no way want to minimize the harm that you went through as a teenager on these tours. But out of that harm came – a realization of something true that there is indeed a bifurcation and you just saw it earlier than I did because you had youth pastors grabbing your ass. And so it took me <laughs> longer to see it, but there is in fact a difference. Uh, I've yeah. been thinking of it like magnets. There is a magnet of Christ and discipleship, but there's also a giant magnet of like subculture and yeah. Fox news and like, in the case of piercing, conservative culture magnet. 
of we will guard against our anxieties about ourselves and our children by being insanely legalistic about dumb shit. And that's how we will feel okay. And so you, you had this awful experience and thank God it wasn't much worse because I can imagine with out safeguards in place, it could have been even much worse than yeah. You have. No, that came later. I'll spare everyone oh, that. Geez. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. up to you. But then something out of that comes and and is still going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that to me is uh, what is it? It's the it's it's kintsugi. It's that ancient art where they take a, a pottery yeah. and drop it, and then they put it back together, and they it's with gold. They put they 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 literally reconfigure the jar and the, and so the breaking becomes beautiful. And I, I do believe that that has been a part of my story. I'm grateful for that. I'm not grateful for the groping, but I'm grateful for the fact that it didn't break me. It didn't break me completely. It broke me open enough to go, this part is bullshit. This part is not. And for me to still be here talking with you about having any faith at all, which I feel like is actually deeper than it's ever been mm. and probably broader than some might feel comfortable with, but that's okay. Uh, not the listeners um, of this show. You're not going to shock anybody. I mean, yeah. it's, I think it's, I'm so grateful to know that like God is big enough to hold me in my, in my belief and in my doubts in my, in my, you know, in my blindness and in the clarity that I'm getting to, you know, I'm so thankful that there's a God that exists like that. Something that keeps coming up for me in the last couple weeks, including an interview I did yesterday, although I'm not sure what's going to come out when, so I'll be repeating myself here. Uh, but there are there are different ways of looking at the crucifixion and resurrection in Christian theology. To do a hard theological pivot here for a second, and one of them is uh, the classic, you know, God killed Jesus because God knew that he needed a perfect sacrifice in order to be in a human's presence. And so yeah, atonement. Yeah, so he orchestrated the atonement to use violence to achieve that end. Another view is uh that no, the crucifixion is what happens when God shows up on earth amongst people, amongst empires, amongst special interest groups to use a uh, modern political language. And what God does is accepts that death and then turns that death into resurrection. I love that thought. And so it's another way of looking at the exact same series of events. And that second way of looking at it is really resonant with the post-traumatic growth literature, the academic research on how some people are able to actually grow out of these experiences of trauma. Uh, And there are various mechanisms for that. And actually church is a big mechanism for that, which is one of the things that makes spiritual abuse so pernicious is that it, it uh, makes it less likely someone can use church to that end and would be the same thing to, to be abused in a church setting and to be abused in a CCM touring setting would be identical in the terms that I'm looking at from a research perspective. So that just keeps coming up and I can't help but note it. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. I use this phrase just in conversation often, which is turning the jewel. So it's what you're talking about. You know, it's like, this is one facet. This is one way to look at it. Here's another facet. Here's another way to look at it. You know, I love what Richard Rohr said. I think it's so succinct. I'm going to paraphrase. God didn't send Jesus to change God's mind about us. 
God sent Jesus to change our minds about God. Yeah, 100%. Love that. I do too. Well, let's take a little break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about autobiographically, we're going to transition into general market music, but I'm sure many mm-hmm. of the themes will continue to circulate amongst themselves. Yeah, we did not go into the kiddie pool with all this, Dan. We went deep. We went spelunking. Good. That's how I prefer it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So, Joy, you are one of really a handful of artists over the last 30 years who has done demonstrably well in CCM land, 11 Dove nominations and 250,000 records, according to Wikipedia, but also then gone on to do demonstrably well in the general market. The Civil Wars had four Grammys. You guys sold over half a million records. And so this is a rare, it's a rare treat to be able to ask some questions about this. Uh, I happen to know personally, Switchfoot and Reliant K, who are two of the other, you know, very of a small list of names, but it's rare. And what I'd love to start with uh, was just, just talk about that transition. I imagine a lot of it was quite a relief. I wonder if there's anything you missed. I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, there was relief and grief when, uh, when I left making faith-based music, I mean, I got called a lot of names, could call a lot of names, which actually just set me up pretty well for what that can feel like later on. Like when a duo doesn't work out and you get called a lot of names, too, mm. <laughs> just different kinds, you know? And it's like, you got, it's okay. You don't know, like they don't really know me. And if they knew me and if they saw me in the grocery store, would they say that to my face? Probably 99% of them would not. And right. um, so the grief was there because it felt like a community that I'd been a part of. And it, I'd, I had felt belonging there and I had felt support there. And it wasn't like I was flipping a giant middle finger to anybody. I just was like, this is, I know that I know that this is not my path, not from here on out. And I can't unknow what I know. So yeah. I got to go. But there was also a deep relief So I spent two and a half, almost three years, just like I said, writing songs, you know, back and forth, going back and forth between LA and writing songs for like Nickelodeon and writing songs for TV film and doing EPs that wound up on Grey's Anatomy and, uh, or those songs from those EPs winding up on Grey's Anatomy. I wrote a jingle for Oscar Mayer that became the seedbed money for me and my husband at the time to start the civil wars, you know, financially Mm -hmm. be able to like, get that off the ground. You know, so, that's my day job is commercial composition. I didn't know that. That's man. what all these guitars and cymbal and keyboard are. I, I've been doing that full time for about nine years now. That's amazing. I'm transitioning out of it to become a psychologist. But yeah, that's I found my way into that after the band. That's yeah. that's so cool. No um, Oscar Mayer jingle. But, you know, I've got some got some Walmart and there you go. Capital One and all that box, stuff. Get some big get box. Get some big box placements, as they say. some big boxes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was doing things like that. You know, I there was a catharsis and a way to sort of be anonymous in that way. I wrote a song called Speaking a Dead Language, which I think at that point in time was sort of the most 
pointed that I felt like I could be at the time sort of uh, speaking about the transition and the why and the, mm-hmm. but then the rest of it, it was just, you know, like sunny days and, you know, it doesn't get better than this and like things like those totally. kinds of titles. And that's um, all they want. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's is fine. its own it very me. funny conversation, by the way, is the type of lyrics they ask you to write for uh, corporations. Absolutely. <laughs> like if only everybody could see the briefs that come the in. The briefs are um, so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm get, I will get so done. Yeah, let's no, let's we'll leave that aside. Yeah. That's leave another that day, baseball. Dan. It's yeah, another, day. another day. Yeah. I think that I was definitely wandering about, but I felt a lot of freedom to be able to write what I wanted to write about. And then when I came into, you know, on that sliding doors day of, you know, sitting down with somebody I'd never met before in order to write a song for a country act I'd never met before, mm-hmm at a writing camp I'd never been to before mm-hmm. and sitting down with John Paul White, who, you know, mm-hmm. wound up being my duo partner for the right. Civil Wars. And I just remembered how easy it was writing with him. And I remembered the songs that we would write. It was like, man, I was able to access these parts of myself because I finally gave my per- myself permission. I gave myself permission to write about being feminine. I gave myself permission to be the archetype of a female or what I believed was female at the time and, 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 and create out of that space. I I was enjoying writing the movie out in front of myself, full of passion and desire and power and brokenness. And, and, and it was okay. And it, and I was okay. And I really think that, that process for me, being in the duo, experiencing a very painful demise of the duo, which many people have conclusions about why that duo ended, which are completely inaccurate. Like it's much like people's ideas of what happened were much more salacious and exciting than what actually happened, which was really not, it's really not what I think most people think. Well, I think with that band in particular, if you've if you watched, you know, one of the music videos or something, it's it's kind of part of the shtick is the wrong word, but it's yeah. You, archetypes is a good word for it. That, that was that was what it was. Yeah, the, it's like a it is a kind of a archetypal sexually frustrated male female act, sure. right? But that yeah. does not mean just because actors do something does not mean that that's what they are like when they're done acting. No, that's a logical no. leap, right? No, but you have to you have to both be adults about that. Sure, sure. I want to actually I want to jump back while we have a little break here to your departure from CCM and and now that you've you mentioned also the ending of Civil Wars and what I took reading between the lines is that people basically called you a whore uh, in yeah. in both instances or a, a loose woman or whatever some something yeah, about your slider yeah. uh, a shame fake. Uh, yeah. just a total disappointment, you know, I won't be listening to any of your music anymore, you know, now that you're not, now that you're singing about things of the world. And, and I was, I, again, it was this, this, this stark reminder of like the, like, why can't a song about nature? Why can't a song about human love? Why can't a song mm-hmm. about, you know, being tipsy at a bar. Why isn't God in any of that? Why? Why is that seen as a threat to God's presence? Like, mm-hmm. I don't believe that that is a threat to God's presence. I I would yeah. venture to say that everything I've read in the Bible, like Jesus was hanging out with people that 
we're getting tipsy at the bar versus like all stuffed up in their robes and like cloistered off elsewhere, you know? Institutional religion draws people with conservative temperaments though. That's across religious systems. And those people don't recognize that that's one of the things that draws them. And they think it's just that they have a bead on the true version of their faith. And so they're not self, they're not self-aware of the fact that like, Maybe they're just the kind of person that doesn't like drinking, but they will say (laughs) that God doesn't want anyone drinking, Mm. right? But it's like – and then so they'll ignore the texts where God – Jesus is called a drunkard because he was clearly drinking. So, you know, it's like – it's that kind of a thing. But I wanted to ask about this gender differential. Um, Mm -hmm. Here's a a conversation that I would love to have happen sometime. And if we can set it up, it would be you and Amy Grant – and Matt Thiessen from Reliant K and John Foreman from Switchfoot. And we talk about male-female differentials and how you're treated when you leave CCM. Oh, my. Oh and that me, would oh be a good conversation. I don't think yeah. that's going to happen. Uh, but I mean, that... I, love, I love Amy Grant. Like there, she's, She is one person from that era that I still am in regular contact with. Oh, I cool. just find her to be so perpetually real. And yeah. kind. So that would be quite a conversation. I remember talking with her when I left CCM, like getting on the phone with her and being like, walk me through your process with this, you know? Oh, wow. And it was brutal. I mean, like she was kind of the first one to really do that on a large scale. And mm-hmm. she did it on a much larger scale than I did. I wasn't anywhere close to what Amy was or where Amy was at the time. But yeah, you get called, you get called like, yeah, I mean, Poor is, yeah. <laughs> like you've, there's, you've, there's different you've expectations. Lost you know, there, there's something about, well, maybe we, maybe we trust the men to like go into the mission field here and like in a way we don't trust the women to do that because women are yeah, weaker, maybe. Or, you know, there's, there's all, I, you could do, you could ask all kinds of little questions about that that yeah, I thought really I don't interesting. know. And, and it's so difficult because to like, overgeneralize I'm sure that everybody had a different shade of concern you know Mm -hmm. I knew people that were like hey you think you think it's brutal in the you know in the music business on this side with CCM like just wait like it's even more brutal on the other side you know I didn't find that to be true I actually felt like I knew what I was working with much more plainly because there wasn't there wasn't a what's I don't even know how to describe it like there wasn't the presupposition that we all believed the same thing. Right. So when you don't have that kind of presupposition, then you actually go, there's much more open handedness and curiosity about the person. And so I knew what I was working with when I, when I would, you know, go on tour with so-and-so or not go on tour with so-and-so, or I knew Mm -hmm. what I I knew what that kind of publisher was like, or I knew what that kind of agent was like. There was no mincing of words and we knew what we were all there to do, which was to make music and, and make a living doing it. Yeah. It was just so interesting when I talked to John Steingard from Hawk Nelson that he would say that they would show up at all these churches and every particular pastor from a particular church would assume that they believed the same thing as the church on all these non-central issues of which it was impossible because the the churches disagreed with each other. And But it's like there's something about that where CCM does a very good job of presenting itself as bland enough – and and lacking detail sufficiently that 
every individual church can think, oh, this person's totally on my team. When in fact, they, you know, they, it's, it's mutually incompatible, right? Hmm. Well, it's almost like if we assume we're all on the same page, then there's no story to tell, right? So it's like, maybe we're all in the same story, but we're on really different pages, you know? Right. When you get outside of CCM, it's just like, hey, what book are you reading? And that's just a very different way to go about life. Right. Yeah. And I, but here's the thing though, I'll never like, you're not going to hear me crap on the people that stuck with me through that. You know, there were a lot of people that were in a similar boat as me that were kind of going, wait, okay, I do have a, I do believe, but how do I believe now? And like, what do I believe now? And all these things, like there was a lot of people that went with me and so to speak, you know, like, and when I was in the civil wars, the reason that we had an automatic fan base was in part. And John Paul had a, uh, had a, somewhat of a fan base as well. It was like us being able to do that. Like the, my, that demographic, that those group of people that were really loyal, like who came down and were on a similar sort of path. Yeah. Like I was even, even very different, but still stuck with the music. Right that was what made our first tours sold out that we were like, yeah. what? I mean, again, with the capacity was like 45, like there's no bragging here, but it's just still, yeah. But like that, that was that nothing was wasted, I guess, is a way for me to say, at least not yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, so we've got about 15 minutes left and I really, I want to focus that time on, on kind of where you've come to today. And I want to start by bringing up something you said earlier, at the very beginning of the interview, as a kid, you talked about how, Nature was a big part of your faith because you were raised on these, you know, sort of mountain or out out of the cities at these retreat centers. And I wanted to start by asking if there is a through line there today uh, with God and nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, my mom taught me how to harmonize walking in the woods and I was mm. three and four. Sort of like one of my very first memories. So how could God not be there, you know? And then we moved and it was always a forest I could run into and cry in. And, you know, it's amazing how you can hit a tree with a stick because you're so hard and the tree doesn't move, you know. And I got married in a redwood forest. And I remember my dad who married us saying, these ancient redwoods are only as strong as the root structure, which is quite shallow. But the way that they stay together is because they stay together. They link their roots. That's how they stay strong. When I was going through a really painful divorce with a very small child and a, and a really young son, um, I would go out into the forest and we w- I would take the kids out there and the ground can hold it. I knew the ground could hold everything that I was feeling at the time. And it's where I am reminded how small I am in the best of ways. It's, I'm very much like, I'm, I'm very Wendell Berry-esque in this way, you know, and very Mary Oliver, you know, it's, these are poets that mean so much to me because I've experienced God far more consistently than I ever did stepping into a church, which is not to say that God doesn't reside there as well. But for me, where I have found the deepest moments of uh, my soul wanting to speak or my soul wanting to be quiet. It's always been outside. 
And I'm bringing my kids into that too. Now that's what I get to pass on. I'm still relearning what it is that I want to pass on from some of how I was raised. And a lot of it is still in my backpack and a lot of it's not. And I believe in the innate conversation that faith is. So that's where I'm at. And I think part of what brought me to that place of bending a knee, not getting my knees cut off per se, but bending a knee to asking the questions and staying curious and begging God to keep my heart big, like those redwood trees that I walked through, was suffering. It was public humiliation. It is on some level not really actually being able to tell people a great many things that have happened to me that would make sense, but that I'm, I'm not able to share. And being, things being assumed and me being called names when I left CCM and me being called a series of names when the, when, you know, when the duo ended. But there are also a lot of other names that I go by. And hopefully it's, hopefully there's some winsomeness to that too. And that the softness remains. It's almost like I'd much rather be a velvet mountain, you know, than an ivory castle. I'm trying to get my head around that one right now. A velvet Which one? mountain. Yeah, a velvet mountain. <laughs> yeah, soft and strong. Yeah. You don't have to you don't have to do this, but if you'd like to, I'd be curious if you could put some more concrete on this uh on this rebar as it were in terms of like you've mentioned Richard Rohr. Um yeah. do you still find life coming from the broadly Christian tradition? Do you find it sort of in equal parts there and other places? You know, like just what does that actually look like for you day to day? I think for me today, I, I focus my life around forgiveness. And I know that left unto my own devices, I am not able to do that, mm. at least not consistently. So despite, I mean, and I tell you what, like that's a whole other podcast, but, you know, I moved out to LA after the duo ended. I was here, there and everywhere with like what I believed and what I was into and all the searching and all of that. And I, I still could never quite shirk the person of Jesus. I could give or take a lot of the other parts, but the person of Jesus continued to and continues to keep me on my toes in a, in a childlike way. So that is where I find for me the portal to forgiveness and of myself and others. And that's what has kept me afloat in seasons where I really didn't believe in anything very much, but Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau and Wendell Berry and Mary Oliver. And, you know, the list goes on and on as well. I mean, also reading important books, you know, like me and white fragility and, you know, it's like these kinds of things. It's like, if I, if I am able to bend a knee, then I can really bend a knee to knowing I've got so much more to learn. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to stand up on some like giant hill proclaiming. I know everything. I don't, I do, I'm not even close. Also, I do might know, you be a little allergic to that after your absolutely, CCM stint? Absolutely, man. Um, yes. Like, I'm not going to stand up and declare. Hopefully, when you see me and you look me in the eye, you'll know that hopefully there's someone looking at you with a lot of love 
and I'll ask you questions. And although I have not been able to do that on this podcast, because you've been asking me all of them today. That's how this works. Yeah. I guess so. Damn it. Um, if you're really interested, there are some thousands of numbers of hours you can listen to. <laughs> Deal. Yeah. Deal. Yeah. So I think the reason that it's not concrete is because to put it in concrete would be to make it small and finite. So I refuse to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Way to call way to call bluff on my uh, – I'm, I'm really trying to up my metaphor analogy game here because you're <laughs> – you well, just naturally. A songwriter, I'll help you. Oh my gosh, I, I'm out of the. I haven't been writing lyrics for very for many years, so I've I've uh, I've strained far. I don't think I ever uh, I ever quite did it with as much uh, as high of a concentration as you seem to to do that. I want to ask about this part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, "Blessed are you when you when others uh, persecute you or ridicule you or whatever for my sake." reading between the lines, I took it to mean that you've got some NDAs that you've signed and, and, and those are often done in completely good faith. And nonetheless, they have consequences. And so your, your time in the public eye has by its very nature left a bunch of questions unanswered for people. And I understand the very human desire for those questions to be able to be answered because, you know, it's your reputation. It's, it's it's the facts, it's whatever it is. But in an instance where you don't say something because you are abiding by an NDA or you are considering fallout for, for another party if you were to speak about something or whatever, did, did you ever think of that as doing something for God's sake because you are – you're being ethical and you're being, you know – reviled for it does does that verse ever give you comfort not until you just said it but i think i think about my kids Mm. i can have those conversations with my kids in a time and a place when they're old enough when they ask about what it is that i've experienced in my lifetime yeah and hopefully by then i will have gotten a little bit wiser and walked a little bit further down the path so that I can do that. And I do, I do value, I do value things when Michelle Obama says like, they go low, you go, we go high, you know, it's, I don't know if I'd say it's, you know, it's in the name of, I don't know if I could ever claim it being in the name of anything other than mercy and my children. For my sake is the language that I'm most used to which is yeah. a little different than in my name. Yeah. In my name is proclam- proclamatory. Yeah. For my sake could actually be completely internal and no one knows why yeah. you did it. Yeah. I've not ever thought of it this way, Dan. I appreciate you bringing it up like this. That also makes more sense in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where all the morality is is taken from external. Don't pray out loud. Don't give loudly. You've heard it said do not kill, but I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've killed. like everything is gone from. He's moving everything from external to internal. Yeah, uh, and so for my sake, interpreted that way. Yeah, it's anything you do that you think is right, you know, basically. Yeah, I do. I mean, I appreciate. I really do. Thanks for bringing this up. I'm going to be chewing on that for a while because the fact that I'm like, huh, means that there is a there's an implicit yes in there. There's something in there. Okay, there interesting. Is. Yeah, there is an implicit yes. I think, I mean, don't you think so much of, 
I think a lot, like, man, if we all just talked less and listened more, how much things could change, you know, starting with me. You can't, you can't say that to a podcast host. Sorry, man. We, there's nothing I can do about talking. About Your it. job is at stake <laughs> by me bringing this point up. No, but like, of course, being a psychologist, I will be doing a shit ton of listening. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll be talking far less than I do on here when, when I'm right. with a client. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I do agree. I, I think there's something, it's almost like there is something interesting though, about having been in the public eye yeah. that makes things like, like some of the Psalms about like my enemies, like most of us don't have enemies encircling us. Like we're not, but David was the most famous person in Israel. Right. And yeah, it's like he, Amy Grant's experience was a lot closer to David's than mine. Right. By being like, she's like the number one star. And then she goes yes. and has a number one hit. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, and there's a lot, a lot to untangle there about celebrity and the way that American consumer culture consumes celebrity and yeah. tons of pathology there to, to whatever untangle. But yeah. I just think it's interesting. You've got a you have a different experiential angle on some of that than most of us have certainly than I have. Yeah. I mean, I think too, it's like, you just got to keep walking. If you stop and try to address every name you've ever been, I've ever been called, I'd never stop, you know? And you see and, the celebrities who try to do that and it's, it's so pathetic. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I get it, man. I, I get, get it too. Why they like, want to, but you're like, ah, oh, oh, that was gosh, just, I've just had don't so do many, it. Yeah. Yeah. I've had so many moments where I'm like this close to just tweeting, you know, and I'm like, don't do it. Like, you just got to move. It doesn't mean move on. Like it doesn't matter. Like, I think it's important where people are like, don't take it personally. I'm like, no, 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 no. That is, it's deeply personal to be called what it is that I've been called. Not in, not correct. It is deeply, deeply painful when people make character assassinations about you when they've never even met you. Like that is difficult work to do. And it's such a waste of time to try and address it. So you feel it deeply. You feel it so deeply until you don't. Because to pretend like it doesn't matter is not, at least to me, is not human. I have friends who are far, far more light years beyond me in, in understanding what that means to like be judged, like just walking down the street, like what, what, what was their footwear, you know, stuff like that. It's just like, it's just bonkers, you know? So you just, they, they just let it, let it roll off. You know, they're so inoculated to it. But those first, I, you ask anybody that's in the public eye, those first few times that they got those first few jabs and everybody remembers, everybody remembers where they were and what they read. I will never forget some of those things that I first read initially, you know, in my early career when I left. And then also with the civil wars where I was just like astounded. I was just, my just jaw dropped open. And then you have to remember that those comments are generally in the minority and to remember that there's a lot of other people in the world that are open-minded and kind and not into judging you and trolling you. Mm -hmm. 
And, and it's like, what do I want to spend my time on? Do I want to spend my time being pissed at the world and pissed that people don't know my full story and angry that people have made assumptions about me and when they don't even know me, or am I just going to get on the floor on my belly with my kids and play? I'm going to do that. I'm going to have as much as I can faith, like a child to say, I don't know, but this is what I know today for me and try and pass that on in a loving way to my kids and let go of so much of what I cannot control. Because if I operate in fear, then I'm doing so much of what I ran from. So what I don't want to do is run. I just want to walk and I want to sit and I want to get on the floor with my kids and, and do the next thing. And that's the faith that I'm operating with. Just do the next thing and Pray for the grace to be able to experience gratitude and clarity along the way so that I don't harm anyone. And when I do, because I will, being thankful that the sun rising and setting is a really good example to me about how I believe God operates with us. Hmm. Joy, thank you so much for your time. You've got a record out, Front Porch. Anything else that I should link to in the show notes besides that? Oh man, that's currently, I mean, that's the music that's out currently. And um, thank you, COVID and single parenting. Um, there's not a whole <laughs> lot of music coming out at the moment yet, but I'm, I have, I have a few up my sleeves, Great. but not out yet. Well, we'll look forward to that. And again, thanks for your time. Really great yeah. conversation. Thanks, Dan. Who knew two kids from King's Academy and Valley Christian would one day in 2020 during this low this pandemic year would be talking like this right now indeed indeed all right well have a good one thanks man see ya